This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hey, cat. <laughs> well, I thought we would start with um, a really simple question. Yeah. What is psychedelic consciousness? A simple question. A simple question. <laughs> you started with the big question. Yeah, I did. And the tricky question. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, one of the words that people use to describe the psychedelic experience or psychedelic consciousness is ineffable. Mm-hmm. So we're going to spend an hour talking about the ineffable. The ineffable. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, first, first thing is, when you talk about psychedelic consciousness, what sort of psychedelic drug or plant are you talking about, and at what dose and for what purpose? So there really isn't a psychedelic experience, so to speak. There's lots of psychedelic experiences. Depends if you're taking MDMA, which is one of the drugs they're using in the clinical trials to help people with PTSD, um, or there's uh, like LSD, a very different experience. But in terms of like a high-dose trip on a classic psychedelic, you know, like LSD or psilocybin or, or, or peyote. Um, I think one of the reasons it's ineff- ineffable is because it's an experience beyond the rational, logical, normal mind, uh, be- beyond the small sense of self, the ego, the I, me, me mind, the mind that's worrying and planning and, and has anxieties and fears and hopes. It's really, it radic- taking a high-dose psychedelic radically changes your sense of self. So you feel like, a, you connect to, I think, a larger self or a larger kind of a self where you feel connected to other people, the world around you in whole new ways and have a whole new sense of, of time and space and yourself. And, um, you know, I said I say ineff- ineffable. Uh, it, for changing our minds, I did research as a reporter and a participant observer and a, a would-be would yeah. psychonaut uh, with five substances, uh, MDMA, psilocybin, uh, 5-MeO-DMT, ayahuasca, and ketamine. And I, I didn't use them as, you know, party drugs or recreationally. I used them in the context I was writing about, which was either the clinical trials or with a therapist as close as I could get to replicating the clinical trials they're doing. Um, but the one that actually sent me out into the highest realms of what I would call psychedelic consciousness was a drug called 5-MeO-DMT, which is in its natural form, it's the dried venom of a Sonoran desert toad, which in itself is kind of mind boggling to think that you can have this experience with. And there's also a synthetic version of it. But I was in Mexico at a clinic and uh, smoke this, it's, it's a very quick trip, 15 minutes or you lose sense of time and you're just blasted into the, I don't know where, into this pure energy, this state of being. And when I came back, the first thing I, that, thinking of the inevitability of it, the first thing that I thought of was, well actually the first thing I thought of was, holy shit, what was that? <laughs> the next thing I thought of was, the peace that pa- passeth understanding, the quote from the Bible. And that's really what it was. It was a it was beyond our normal way of understanding, which is why it it can be so hard to talk about. 
and why it can often seem so profound at the time, and then the next day when you try to describe your experience can sound like it's a kind of a hallmark card or something. You'll be saying, yeah. love, love is, love, I discovered that love is the fundamental energy of the universe. And okay. people kind of nod you at you. Do you want your coffee with cream? <laughs> yeah. But at the time, I mean, these medicines are, are meaning-generating medicines, right, you know. Right. And and it's it's so it's 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 very it's it's a hard thing to, to to talk about. But you know, losing the sense of your at a high dose psychedelic experience, losing the sense of your skin as the boundary between you and everything else, can be very terrifying or very liberating, you know, depending on how you. Look at it. How you're, if you're prepared for it, if you're in a supportive environment. So that's why Aldous Huxley, who I write about in one of my books, uh, Distilled Spirits, the British writer and philosopher who wrote a book, The Doors of Perception, in 1953, one of the first books in the English language to really po help popularize psychedelics. I mean, he called them heaven and hell drugs mm -hmm. because they can take you to heaven and they can take you to hell. It's a it's a double edged sword. Right. Um, and um, yeah. So so it's. But that, in terms of the, the psychedelic experience, psychedelic consciousness, it's, it has, for me, it has to do with this radical re-envisioning of, of yourself into a bigger, a bigger self, a bigger picture. Well, and it's really unusual for a journalist doing a story to, to experience the story in the same way that the subject is. Usually we think of ourselves as the fly on the wall right. or something like that. So what made you decide that you really needed to or you wanted to be in the experience as well for the book, these books? Well, I mean, I, I, used, I used to describe myself as kind of old school journalists. I was old school. You know, I worked for the Chronicle for many years. I covered religion and spirituality for the Chronicle for many years. And I was a dirty word. I mean, you don't talk right. about yourself. Right. It's not about you. And in my first few books about this, uh, I didn't talk about myself at all. Harvard Psychedelic Club is a little afterward where I talk about some of my experiences. Um, but with, 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 and the other thing was, I mean, to be really honest with you, I love getting high. <laughs> which at I mean, and it's, which yeah. has gotten me in trouble in the past. Right, I mean, I wrote a right. book about being an alcoholic and a co recovering cocaine addict, you know? So, I mean, I, I have, I love to get high. So what was interesting about changing our minds is when I started that, and I, I did a lot of exploring with psychedelics back in the seventies, you know, when I was in my twenties. And into the 80s with MDA and then MDMA, so I, which sometimes was recreational, but often had a spiritual component to it. Um, but with, with Changing Our Minds, when I started the reporting for that, I'd been completely sober for eight years. I mean, I, I stopped everything. I had nothing stronger than a double espresso for eight years. So I was a little, you know, I was cautious going into it because, I, as I say, I love to get high and I've got to watch that. Um, but, uh, I just thought it was important for me to, you know, to be, I, I was, I was interviewing people who were subjects in clinical trials who were suffering from depression, substance abuse themselves, post-traumatic Iraqi war vets who were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, people who were opening their lives up to me in, in, you know, very personal, meaningful ways. And so I felt to try to understand what I was running, but I had to try to experience that in the same context that they were. So I would, while I couldn't qualify for the underground, for the, for the clinical trials, um, because they're very specific who they'll take for a clinical trial, FDA approved clinical trial, I was able through the, uh, there's a whole underground therapy network of therapists using uh, psychedelic drugs, magic mushrooms, MDMA, to basically do the same kind of work that they're doing in these clinical trials to try to 
bring this up above ground, right? So I just thought it was important for me to understand these substances and these states of mind in, in the context closest like so the same thing with writing about ayahuasca or some of the more shamanic expressions of this i mean there's a couple different ways that this this work is coming above ground but i just thought it was important for me to to experience it in the context i was writing about and then the, the, as a journalist the, the question is how much of myself do i put into the story mm -hmm. yeah when do i get in when do i get out you know so um i tried to find the right balance for that yeah. in, in changing our well, minds. And, yeah, you do it really differently in changing our minds than in Harvard Psychedelic Club where you're really not in the story. It's wonderfully constructed with um, sort of archetypal names for the four characters, the, the trickster, the teacher, the seeker, the who am I forgetting? Healer. Healer. Uh, yeah. Um, at Harvard and, and the roles they played in the flowering of psychedelics in America. And then in changing our minds, um, uh, you you are reflecting. You're reflecting on your take on the interviews, sort of what you hear from people, then some of your experience a little bit. You dip in, you dip out. I thought one of the really moving sections for for that changing our minds was with it was the, one of the vets, who has a very you you do a really nice job of describing um, what his journey was like was was it psilocybin or mdma that he was uh he was using? on mdma and that was for ptsd ptsd yeah 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 and and how did you how did you learn what was happening in his therapy sessions yeah well uh so the work with uh afghan war vets and other people suffering from ptsd not just war vets they're uh, sexual abuse victims all, any kind of trauma it can mm -hmm. be can be uh, firefighters uh, you know law enforcement people with some kind of a trauma um so the, there's an organization called MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They've, for 30 years, they've been do, sponsoring research, trying to convince the FDA to reschedule MDMA so it can be used as a legal medicine with a trained therapist to help people with PTSD. So uh, through MAPS, I found uh, Nigel McCurry, who's the vet I write about in the, in the, the first chapter, Changing Our Minds. And what was, as a journalist, what was great about that experience is now I couldn't sit in on an actual session because you know, there's privacy rights and you don't want to get in the way, but uh, they videotape these sessions. So I, with Nigel's permission and MAPS's permission, I was able to look at the whole, it's a six hour session. Did you I mean, do it all at once? I sort of, I tried to just to kind of get the sense of being there, but I have to admit, I maybe <laughs> two or three hours at two different settings. I mean, settings, it's almost but, like if you're going to watch but, it that long, don't you sort of get a little transported yourself into a non-ordinary reality by just being a witness to a non-ordinary well, reality? A, a bit. I mean, maybe if you were in the room, you might feel that more. We used to call that a contact high. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but... Uh, I wouldn't say I've really felt because a lot of it is actually pretty boring because a lot of it is he's he's the, the format is well for, for, for instance when you're in these clinical trials you there's a lot of screening there's preparatory sessions where you talk to the therapists uh, so there's a lot of work before you take the the MDMA and then there's there's two therapists sitting with you the whole time usually a man and a woman uh, a team and uh, you put on uh, uh, headphones with music eye shades uh, to make it sort of an, an inner experience with with the medicine, and then whenever you feel like it, you can you know take the eye shades off, talk, you know go back into the 
that 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 state of consciousness you can you, some of it could become like kind of talk therapy kind of like talking through the fears around the the trauma that you experienced uh so actually a lot of it's pretty boring because you're you're, you're, look, you're looking at a video of someone laying like this you know <laughs> and uh-huh. uh although someday might start crying or you know there could be some, but you know it's yeah yeah there's actually nothing more boring than watching someone else have a psychedelic trip <laughs> sometimes <laughs> <laughs> it's all internal you don't really see anything um but but then they there, there would be conversation that they would have that nigel would have with the two therapists and and his story was incredible i mean there's it's such a huge problem as you know i mean the the ptsd epidemic in the for, among veterans expensive i mean billions and billions tens of billions of dollars high being spent. rates of suicide yeah high rates of suicide and one of the reasons that the government is finally opening up to rescheduling psychedelic drugs in this particular case mdma is because they they don't have effective treatments i mean all the people in these clinical trials were treat not they didn't just have ptsd they had treatment resistant ptsd so they were like the harder cases and they've had really good results in the in the first phase the first two phases of these clinical clinical trials. But I mean, Nigel was an Iraqi war vet. He was in a, one of the stories, he, he starts out with a story of him in a firefight in Fallujah, where uh, there was a, a, a white truck approaching and they were trying to get them to stop and they didn't. And so they fired on them. And it turned out it was a man with two young daughters. And the, the, two, the, the two young girls died. And the driver, the father survived. And, you know, Nigel had to experience this and be responsible. It was an accident. You know, he thought it was a car bomb or something. And, but uh, he was dealing with the guilt and the trauma of killing these two little girls and seeing the father carry the bodies away. And, and, and that's just one of many things he experienced in Iraq. So um, I, I wonder uh, if you'd read a little section. Um, sure. Because sure. I thought, you know, what was really, um, um, really insightful for me in reading this was, was hearing how did he... Yeah, how did he how did how did he work with that in the session? What did the therapist do? What did he do? And so I I thought this little section here, um, this marked off, and then a little bit from the next page as well. It just describes you describe it. It describes so well. Okay. Yeah. So like I said, this is from you know. So this is actually verbatim you know conversations they actually had because it was from the video. See if I can see right to this light. Uh, there's a pause. Oh, so there's, the two therapists are named Annie and Michael, and the patient is named Nigel. So the, the, the client is named Nigel. There's a pause, and then Annie asks, can you have compassion for Nigel the Marine? It's hard to have compassion for him. That's Nigel. What if you did, Michael asks. I guess it would be okay, Nigel replies in a fat, flat voice. I just haven't felt it yet. Michael. Other vets have told us that it felt like this kind of monster came out of them, that it's not, but it's not that they are monsters, it's the way they and you responded in an extreme situation. It's more than that, Nigel replies. Two months into that deployment, I felt like a completely different person. It took a lot of the humanity that I had. I became more like a wild animal than a respectable individual. It was a major shift in the way I thought and the way I felt. You didn't become an animal, Michael replies. You behaved like an animal to protect yourself. Nigel acknowledges that he needs to find a way to feel some compassion for that, for, quote, that person in those circumstances, close quote. You know, he said, I didn't even stop to think about these things when I got out. It's been seven or eight years now. Michael points out that suppressing those difficult memories and feelings served Nigel well in the short term. You didn't kill yourself. You didn't become a drug addict. 
You didn't, you got yourself through school. These are things that he had done after he got out of the military. You got into graduate school. It's not like you didn't, it's not, it's not like it didn't serve you at all. Um, then you want me to skip down to here? Yeah. Well, you know, maybe. And there's a, there's a, there's, there's another a, better one on page thirty, I think. Yeah, that you had that you. Yeah, had yeah. There's yeah. A, so so what's what's interesting about not just about Nigel's story, but you know, in the book I talk about a lot of the people, the experiences they had, whether they're addicts or or trauma victims or whatever it is, and they'll sometimes they'll describe their trips, which can be like you know very visual, wondrous trips, horrible, scary, monster kind of trips. They all kinds of different experiences, but what I really was trying to understand is. How does that work? I mean, how does the how does having a psychedelic experience cure you of PTSD or stop you from uh, using if you're a heroin addict, uh, or or relieve your depression? And Nigel had a had a nice so it, so that's the question I asked him in the end of the chapter. Uh, I say Nigel believes his MDMA therapy sessions gave him a greater psychological insight into his problems. Uh, uh, Nigel believes his MDMA therapy sessions gave him greater psycho in psychological insight into his problems, but that the drug also works, quote, balancing out brain chemistry, close quote. And here's the quote that I did. He says, it prepares the brain to have a healing experience. When I was on the MDMA, I felt for the first time like I was able to clearly see the individual components that were working together to create PTSD. But it, it just, before it just seemed like this jumbled up mess of psychological junk that I couldn't work through. It was like the MDMA gave me an aerial view of the terrain. And I've heard that from other people that I interviewed, that it's just a, a new way of looking at their problems or their, themselves with the help of whether it's MDMA, which is particularly good for PTSD because MDMA, uh, you feel compassion, you feel empathy, for others and yourself. And it kind of reduces the fear that a lot of people have and able to talk about this stuff. I mean, most people who take MDMA go to raves or go to concerts and go to festivals and they feel really great and comfortable and it's kind of the same thing. They're not afraid of other people. So they're open and they're having a good time and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a recreational way to use this, this drug. But when you use it in the context of uh, uh, treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. I think it, that's why MDMA really works for that particular problem, and it's why the FDA has recently granted breakthrough status for use for using MDMA and uh, for PTSD. And they're just about to announce. Maps is just about to announce any day now that they're going to. They're doing phase three of these clinical trials. Describe what phase yeah. three means. When I mean, that's a very advanced stage of a clinical trial. But yeah, describe yeah, what, what the, it means. So it's a long, long process. These are double-blind, placebo-controlled studies where they do sessions where the pa patient and the therapist, uh, the patient and the therapist are not supposed to know whether they're getting the drug or a placebo. I mean, in a way, it's a little bit of a farce because it's it's not like other drugs. You know if you got it or not for the most part. But they have to do this to have a control group to compare. And then the people who get the placebo are able to have the actual therapy with with the with MDMA later. Um, so anyway, it's, it's a long process. I mean, MAPS has been working for literally 30 years to try to get this drug rescheduled and spent tens of millions of dollars of private money. And so the third phase that they're in right now is basically they had really good results on a smaller scale, uh, one or two sites with maybe you know 20 or 30 patients. To get it to get it rescheduled, you have to replicate. You have to show you can replicate that success, that success on a lar larger scale. So there'll be like dozens of different clinics, with hundreds of a few hundred uh, patients perhaps, uh, before they'll 
actually reschedule it and then therapists can routinely use it. But the interesting thing is during the phase three, they're allowed something called expanded access. So starting, you know, maybe in a few weeks or months, for the first time, people with PTSD can legally get above ground, can legally get therapy. With, uh, a certain small they, number. A, a small yeah. number. They yeah. allow that. Uh, they used to call it compassionate use. It's like if you have a real problem, you don't, shouldn't have to wait for this long process if they've already shown that it's safe and effective. So, so they're, they're allowing, I think, just 50 people initially, you know, which is interesting because it raises some other questions about what this costs, who pays for it, you know, because during the clinical trials, this is free for the, for the, for the research subjects. Yeah. But, you know, it's expensive therapy when you do it in the real world because you're dealing with all this. It's not the drug, it's the therapy time. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this raises a whole other issue about, um, I guess there are two kind of ways I'm thinking of going here, but one of them is um, who who gets access to this and who controls the access? Yeah. Um, because if because once it once a drug is reclassified off of the schedule one, which is when it when it's deemed to have no medical purpose, um, when it's schedule one, it's deemed when it's schedule that, one, yeah. it's easy to abuse, no medical, yeah. no medical value, and easy to abuse. Right. That, so yeah. so yeah. that so then to move it into something where it can be prescribed, it has to be deemed as having medical value. Right, right. But like you say, there's a huge controversy, which you write about in your book, about whether or not there can even be valid scientific studies. Because if, if for a valid scientific study, you have to have someone who doesn't know they got the placebo, that's kind of hard to do when the, when the drug is a psychedelic or something like that. And so, and then there's the whole question of, you know, should the researcher know what the experience is like? So should they take it? But that's not done in scientific studies. So right. talk a little bit about right. the controversy of, you know, how how this is happening. It's unfolding now in the U.S. Yeah, well, there's, but a, there's a lot of difference of opinion about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's there's a big difference within the psychedelic community. The people are in favor of this, but the whole medicalization of it. I mean, that's part of the question. I mean, the the reason that they have double blind placebo controlled studies is not because that's necessarily the best way to do it with this particular drug but that's what the FDA requires for you to do right so they have to go through all the hoops and i mean there is some value in having a control group anyway and but they've certainly shown that it is effective i mean that's not even a question i mean there were there was i mean MDMA was legal until 1985 it, it was it was legal longer than a lot of the other drugs that were put on schedule 1 back in the 60s and 70s so they I mean, there's, they just have to sort of prove what everybody knows, really. With, with serious therapy with MDMA, it can, it can really be effective, more effective than existing treatments. That's, that's already known. But the other question is, should it, is it really, I mean, who are the gatekeepers? Right. I mean, uh, if we medicalize it, then that means, okay, like for instance, on this expanded access, it's going to, the people have to pay for this, right? So it's going to cost between five and, and between, I think, seven and $15,000 for us, for a ser the series of preparatory uh, sessions and this actual psychedelic session and the follow up integration. It's going to cost, you know, up to $15,000 for someone to do this. Um, who can afford that? Insurance won't cover it in, in the expanded access. What they're hoping is eventually insurance will cover psychedelic therapy, uh, like it covers other therapy, other psychotherapy or other anti uh, antidepressants. Um, but that's not 
that's not a certainty by any means that insurance will pay for it. So what's happened, it's already happening in the underground therapy movement, but it's kind of an elite thing. I mean, the people who can afford to spend, you know, it's, it's less expensive with this, with underground therapists, but so it raises that whole question of access, who, who can have access who to this it? and yeah. who are the gatekeepers and do, do we really need doctors to control this? I mean, are there other models you know, and there there are. I mean, there, there is the under. It's not like you only the, the underground therapy scene is not going to go away. <laughs> I don't. I don't think. Well, I guess it depends it's just, on it's whether like, it's it like medical legalized, marijuana, right? Mm-hmm. Whether anything gets legalized or whether insurance does end up covering something, then there wouldn't be as much reason for the underground therapy if if insurance covers, but. There wouldn't be as much reason, but it would probably still be cheaper because, you know, the, for instance, on the expanded access, they're requiring an MD or, a, a, or maybe a PhD to be present during the sessions. So that, you know, if you have an MD, you know, it's a difference between going to see a psychiatrist, you know, versus a you know, community clinic therapist or something. It's just a difference in cost. So do you right. really need to have a medical doctor in charge of this? No, I don't think you do. It's not a. It's not really a medical thing. I mean, some of the best sitters, the best guides, are totally untrained in terms of traditional training. It, you have to have empathy. You have to. You have to know what you're doing. You have to have some training, but you don't need a medical license to be a psychedelic it guide. It seems like you need more trauma training. You know, if you're well, if what you're tra- working on yeah. in, with PTSD or depression, you'd need more training in helping people through trauma than you would necessarily. A medical, physiological yeah. medical problems. Yeah. No. No. Tra- tra- I mean, trauma is is a really tricky tricky thing to work with in, in, in patients. Uh, um, you know, the, the other thing that Nigel's story raises and, and his conclusion raises is this issue of that this that the, these drugs are not an answer, like a singular answer without any other, whoops, without any other um, element. So without the therapist, without the willingness of the, of the person to do the work, Something you bring up a lot in in both the books is that this idea that a psychedelic or um, an entheogen is going to somehow magically change our lives overnight just isn't the case. Right. Um, and exactly. You have yeah. some one good of, one quotes of the from I, that. Don't well, you I start out good... with a quote. Actually, I start. Yeah. Out, I think I start out. Is it this book? I think it is. I start out with a quote from. Uh, yeah. This. Uh, so this is an LSD researcher named Sidney Cohen who was doing LSD research in the fit 1950s. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and uh, so he had a lot of experience. So he's looking back. He says, a pill does not construct character, educate the emotions, or improve intelligence. It's not a spiritual labor-saving device, salvation, instant wisdom, or a shortcut to maturity. However, it can be an opportunity to experience oneself and the world in a new way and to learn from it. Now, that's not a small thing, <laughs> but, you know, it, no, it's not a magic bullet. And And, you know, there's I mean, psychedelic therapy is kind of the hot new, it's considered like the hot new thing now, right? There's a lot of excitement about it. There's a lot of people excited about the potential, which is great because there is a lot of potential. But there's a, maybe a little irrational exuberance around it too. <laughs> you know, it's not a magic bullet. And, 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 the, and, and the work you do, you know, with the therapist, with yourself, um, you know, even during the sessions, you know, the music, for instance, is in some ways as powerful and important as the actual drug, you know, it's, it's the, it's, or the, the sensory deprivation from, you know, having the eye shades on the support you have from an empathetic person with you holding your hand, you know, there's all, it's not just the drug. You see psychedelic drugs medically are not like other drugs. It's really not about the drug. It's about the experience or the insight that the drug occasions. It's not, it's so it's, that's why it's kind of silly or, 
crazy in a way to s study them like you would study like painkillers right or even maybe traditional antidepressants but um but like i say it's what you had that's what those are the hoops you have to jump through to to decriminalize uh right. but uh you know there's we're really entering this post-prohibition era whether or not the fda <laughs> Reapproves. I mean, it's happening. It's happening people are anyway. talking about it more. You know, people are being open about their psychedelic experience. People are kind of coming out of the closet. You know, like 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 for sort of a bit like you know, gays and lesbians. They come out of the closet and talk about things and and change change society's mind about the value of 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 this. So, do you think that that's a really? It strikes me that that is very different from what you write about in the Harvard Psychedelic Club, where certainly. Uh, Tim Leary and Richard Alpert and um, and, and company well. and yeah um, were tr saying they were doing research. They were attempting to do some kind of research into consciousness, right. but they were also just kind of willy nilly, yeah. you oh, know, this. being very irresponsible <laughs> about a lot of In aspects a lot of, ways they were. of it, you yeah. know, and yeah. and so um, and so it's and when I read some of the language that you know that. The, some of the conversations they had and some of the quotes that you have, it sounds like they were saying, well, you know, it's the answer. If we just do this, we will find enlightenment. And are you, do you, when you, do you get a sense that that was more of a, a way that people were thinking in the 60s and it's different now or are people still thinking that way now? I think people are still, it, 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 it depends. I mean, there are people who've been around since then working in this and they've kind of settled, they've lowered some of their expectations. But you know, the thing about when you, first, the first time you take a psychedelic, it's like so amazing. It's a whole level of consciousness you've never experienced, uh, an understanding of reality you've never even conceived of. So it's, it's, it's kind of natural that you would be very enthusiastic about it when you, when it you first happens, but you know, uh, but I'm talking but, about th these, these but, are people but, who were very enthusiastic for many years. <laughs> well, but doing, you know, doing I mean, Leary, like, Leary and Alpert, they were clinical psychologists, yeah. you know, I mean, but Leary was already a rebel within psychology. I mean, right. he was challenging the but power their house relationship. Guests were, were running into trees. Oh, uh, oh no, they, were, cars. they very, <laughs> they very quickly saw that they, they actually did very little serious research. They did a couple studies, okay. Uh, okay. but no, they, it, it very quickly became a social crusade for Leary and Alpert and getting out of, I mean, they got kicked out of Harvard. So the, in a way they, you know, that, that stopped them from doing serious scientific research, right, but right. it was, but they were happy to leave <laughs> because they, it was, it was, a, it was really a social crusade. I mean, and that's, that's why I, uh, I wrote Harvard Psychedelic Club because th these four characters who came together at Harvard in the fall of 1960, there's Leary and Alpert. And then there's Andrew Weil, who was an undergraduate who actually kind of brought them down uh, exposed some of the some of the problems with the kind of the party atmosphere around the research, which, which got them kicked out. Which got them kicked out. Yeah. I didn't realize then, that, that was Andrew yeah. Wilde who got them kicked out. Yeah, yeah, Andrew, yeah, Andrew Wilde. Well, they they had an agreement at Harvard that they were only supposed to use graduate students as research subjects, mm -hmm. not undergraduates. And uh, Andy Wilde was a was an undergraduate at Harvard. He was 19 years old, and he and a friend named Ronnie Winston. Uh, wanted to become subjects, and they were told, you know, politely that sorry, you can't. And then, um, but Richard Alpert, nevertheless, gave Ronnie Winston psilocybin. He admits partly because he was kind of romantically attracted to him. He admits that. I mean, it would be kind of a Me Too hashtag story <laughs> today, today, in a way. I mean, Richard yeah. Alpert was a gay man living in the closet, and it was a different era. And I mean, nothing happened. It was just more like a romantic attraction. And but his his judgment was clouded, and he uh, privately led him in some psilocybin 
sessions. And that's what got him kicked out. And Andy Weil wasn't allowed to participate and was jealous <laughs> and, and kind of wrote an, exp- wrote an expose in the Harvard Crimson about kind of the party atmosphere around the research at Harvard. And that's what got, that's what got uh, Leary and Opera kicked out. Um, so, I mean, and, and Andy, while, while he had, you know, other reasons for doing it, I mean, uh, he had other, he was, there's some jealousy, other things, but he was right. There was, it was, it was quite a party, uh, and it continued. <laughs> it's, and, it's called the sixties. It's called the sixties. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was really just behind that generation. I'm maybe about five years behind. Yeah, I just got the tail end myself. Yeah. So. <laughs> but I always admitted that too. <laughs> What I do recognize is that from my childhood to now, the people who came through that dramatically changed our world in so many ways. I mean, we didn't have recycling when I grew up. We have, we had recycling by the time I was in college, you know. So, I mean, that's a very small thing, but all of these things that we now take for granted as part of an environmental movement, as part of meditation, mindfulness, you know, so many of these were started by people who are uh, who came through the '60s and came through yeah. this psych- yeah. uh, psychedelic revolution. I mean, it's not the revolution. only reason, but it's a factor, sure. Yeah, yeah. But I, what I'm wondering, I guess, is now, do you think that there's a stronger movement for um, medical use and health and treatment and a slightly diminished element of social revolution? Or am I just reading that wrong? No, I think both things are happening. I mean, look at Burning Man. <laughs> I mean, the, the, that's very yeah. reminiscent of the, the human being, the free concerts at Golden Gate Park, the festival culture. That's all still there. I mean, it hasn't gone away. Yeah, it's all. It's everything is everything is still happening. What What's changing is that uh, that the government is finally, I think, going to reschedule at least MDMA and psilocybin. So they so so it's it, they're going. Yeah. It's going to be. But the other stuff is not going to go away. But I don't see people at Burning Man <laughs> doing what Larry did, which was like lead a public crusade in favor of LSD because it's going to revolutionize the world like i mean they're going everybody knows but you don't hear people talking about it all that much. well partly because you have to remember when leary and alpert were saying lsd is going to save the world it was still legal i mean it was was, oh you're right so i mean (laughs) yeah i mean it wasn't made illegal till 66 yeah so uh you know and 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 before leary and alpert ever discovered this stuff i mean there was there was at least 10 maybe 15 well at least 10 years of research thousands of studies using LSD I mean there were there was a lot of serious research into the use of psychedelics for same things as uh, you know depression um, alcoholism um, also end stage, ultra- yeah in stage life yeah um, uh, and, well depression around in around a cancer diagnosis and and uh, uh, yeah so they actually that's why there's so much there's a lot of resentment about Leary and Alpert that they sort of they prompted this backlash and shut and everything was shut down now this real story is much more complicated than that yeah. I mean you know there were a lot of other reasons why they sh- this was shut down I mean the, the most horrific research that was being done was done by the CIA and the, and the United States Army I mean the all the the, the the psychedelic testing that was done you know I write a little bit about, about that in the book but there are other books about that I mean just horrific kind of cruel research uh, giving people LSD without their knowledge uh, you know um, this whole MK Ultra program this was crazy stuff was going on and that was starting to come out in the seven in the 60s and 70s so the government was like worried about that about exposing their own abuses of this and and then also the thing that was going on was Remember the thalidomide babies, the people who were born with Thali- birth defects, thalidomide, thalidomide, yeah. thalidomide babies, yeah, um, thalidomide, yeah. Uh, th- that was that was because that there was a reaction against that and greater controls for human testing of drugs, not psychedelic drugs, all kinds of drugs. 
I mean, it was used to be, so, so a lot, there's a lot was going on for the reason they shut down the psychedelic research, but Leary and Alpert were part of that. Uh, it was more of a political, you know, they, they threatened the political establishment. Right, right. You know. Well, yeah. it's, you've, you've mentioned it, it seems like we're coming full circle now. So we're, so we're going back to the research that was dropped in the 1950s, um, or was dropped after the 1950s when, when right, everything was shut down. dropped in the late 60s, late 70s. 60s. Yeah. And so we're coming back around to that and picking back up all of the potential that was there, all yeah. of the tremendous potential that was there for various different healing uses. Yeah. Yeah, there's a sort of a feeling of reinventing the wheel, <laughs> especially uh-huh. when you talk to people who were around. There's still a few people who were around during that first wave of, of, of research. Yeah. 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 Do you think that, is there anything that only psychedelics can do? Like, in other words, the, these kinds of experiences of uh, oneness and um, uh, dissolving of the self, you know, can happen in many, many ways. And we, we've talked a little bit offline, you know, preparation for this about I've had several experiences that had nothing to do with with um, substances or plants that were uh, extremely non-ordinary reality right. sure. and dissolving of self. So is there something that only psychedelics can do? I wouldn't say there's that only psychedelics can do it. Like you said, there are a lot of ways to approach or experience this kind of non-dual sense of consciousness that I was talking about in the beginning. I mean, yeah. there's meditation, there's yoga, there's prayer, there's fasting, there's body work, there's tantric sex, there's underwater basket weaving. I think, <laughs> I think they have a class on that <laughs> here at CIIS. But, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and there's psychedelic drugs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are lots of ways to get there. I mean, uh, uh, but it's a lot... I mean, it's not just that it's easier with psychedelics, but it is, you know, although the the actual experience isn't necessarily easy if you're dealing with all the demons that can come up in a, in a, in a psychedelic session. But no, it's another way to get there. But it, but it, it, it is, uh, I mean, a lot, you hear a lot of, a lot of the research subjects who I interviewed in Changing Our Minds, you know, these are people that went years and years of talk therapy or other kinds of therapy. And that's very common to hear them say, it was like six years of therapy in six hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear that all the time. And of course, the question is, okay, does that stick? Does right. whatever insight they have, are, I mean, one of the one of the things that Houston Smith, who's one of the characters in Harvard Psychedelic Club, said about, about this, he said, it's more impo- what's more important is altered traits, not altered states. Mm-hmm. Meaning that altered states of consciousness are great, but does it change the way you live your life? Does it make you a more compassionate human being? Is it uh, how do you treat your wife? How do you get along at work? You know, how do you feel about the planet, uh, environment? You know, what kind of does it inspire some kind of social action or compassion on outside of? So you know, those are but those are questions you could ask about any kind of. Right. <laughs> there. You could ask right. the same thing about a meditation retreat. Right. You know. So, so what about it, for you? Do you think that it? Do you think that in in what ways do you for, feel for, like for me? I you know. I, I mean, you know, one of the things about psychedelic experience is it's about a sense of being, not doing. That's another way of looking at it. And and, and it's quieting down this ego, you know, the, this this small I that I was talking about. And for me, it's really difficult. I mean, I've tried meditation. I've tried all kinds of techniques, you know, both as a human being and as a reporter, participant, observer, and all this. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I kind of need heavy artillery <laughs> to, uh-huh. to burst through 
my ego. Uh-huh. Ask my wife. She's back there. She'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> she'll, confirm, she'll confirm this for you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I admit, I, I, I need heavy artillery. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, but like I say, at the beginning, I'm also very careful about it because I do love to get high. And um, fortunately, you know, I've, I've found a way. You know, I write about this in the book. I was, been, I was on antidepressants for many years, traditional antidepressants. And I got off of them doing the research for changing our minds. Kind of accidentally, actually, because I, I, when I wanted to do ayahuasca for the first time, which was in Brazil at a retreat center, they recommend that you get off SSRIs because there can be it can be dangerous. You can have something called a serotonin surge if you do both together. So I titrated down. I got off the antidepressants to, to experience the ayahuasca the first time, and I never went back on. And I found some other uh, uh, psychedelic therapy uh, work that I've continued to do, which is with ketamine, which is a whole other story, uh, which is, uh, there's been a lot of really great findings of using ketamine for depression. And uh, so I'll do, a, you know, a, occasional ketamine sessions, but not a pill you take every day. And that's helped me uh, to, you know, live with my depression or, you know, I mean, it's still there, obviously. But um, it's a whole different approach to to the because it, because it, it, it what I what I when I do a ketamine session which is about a, it's the, the lozenges that you can take and it's a little session like that with eye shades and the headphones and you kind of float off you, you get over that sort of my my me me my sense of yourself and what I find on a ketamine session is I I see how my different parts of my life fit together mm-hmm. and have meaning and I feel a lot of gratitude. Which I don't. It's not my normal state of mind. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. It's not you know, very many journalists have a state of mind of gratitude. Yeah, it's a journalistic it's, occupational yeah. hazard or something. Yeah. But I mean, it just it's it's it just reminds me of how my life is working and has meaning. And then I re- you remember that. Mm-hmm. And but, but with traditional antidepressants, you don't kind of get that insight in the same way. It kind of flattens out the symptoms. But with the ketamine sessions that I've done. It, 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 they're temporary. There is a, te- yeah, but so are antidepressants. I mean, everything's temporary, right? I mean, antidepressants are more temporary. Traditional ones, you have to take them every day. If you stop, <laughs> you get incredibly depressed. I mean, to me, that's more dangerous. That's a dangerous, more of a dangerous drug than psychedelics in some ways. I feel more, more uh, uh, reliant on it, dependent on, on a traditional antidepressant. So, and ke- the thing, nice thing about ketamine is it's not schedule one. So it's already legal. So I get it prescribed by a doctor. It's totally above board. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a little window into how, what, what could happen with some of these other medicines like MDMA or psilocybin, what, what's happening with ketamine now. It's almost like really um, for, I mean, for all the various different mental health problems that, that we have as human beings, I mean, there's quite a large range of them, that this is a really early indication that somehow there are elements of, of psychedelics that can help, you know, because what they are doing is something with brain chemistry. So we don't really know exactly how they all work, yeah. but something with brain chemistry, something with the way that our body communicates with itself, you know, between brain and body. And, and, and it makes me curious how much more there is to discover about this. I mean, even your, your point about the ayahuasca and addiction, you know, um, what, what is the relationship between why, why do you think that worked, that, that you didn't... I'm sorry, it was about the antidepressant, not addiction, wasn't it? That I'm you sorry, just, 
I yeah. Was, I was talking about yeah. Yeah, the, you were talking the, about the antidepressant. Yeah, yeah, but 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 there. But has even been. with but even with my ayahuasca, I, I I had already when I did ayahuasca, I had already stopped drinking and using. I mean, I was eight years totally clean and sober. Okay. So I, I didn't use psychedelics to get clean or, or, or to treat my own substance abuse but there has issues. Been some discussion but but, it, of but that. it did give, and I read about it in the book, it gave me some new insight into my the, the addict part of my mind and the other parts of my mind and the 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 plant we were talking about this before, that people were talking about plants having intention, a plant being a teacher, talk you were talking about talking to plants. Right. And you know, as a as a skeptic, as a journalist, I oh come on, give me a break, you know? I mean, plants having consciousness, it's ridiculous. And but when I actually took the ayahuasca, I experienced it. I still don't believe it, by the way. But <laughs> but, I, but I experienced it. It was there was yeah. something about the ayahuasca. It was the, the the nature of the experience was really different in a subtle way. It was like like it was like it was leading me, sort of teaching me, showing me something. And what it was showing me was how my addictive mind works, it reminding me of that because I because I wanted more ayahuasca. As soon as I felt, oh yeah. <laughs> You know, I want ah, I want more. That's uh-huh. what I. That's I'm an addict. Right. I want more, and rather than but but it, it enabled me to look at that in, in a in a way like it's sort of leading me there, and that's a different experience than I had say with the psilocybin or the five meo DMT or even the ketamine. The ketamine is a little bit like that, but anyway, it's they're all they're all different. And the other thing to remember is it's to- totally individual. You know, you have, that's why you have to be so careful with these substances. They don't affect everyone the same way. They're not for everyone, for sure. You know, I always want to sort of point that out, that these can be psychologically dangerous. I mean, in Harvard Psychedelic, I write a little about a psychotic break that I had, which scared the death, scared the hell out of me when I was 19 years old and had after a bad acid trip. And so I, I treat these medicines with respect, and that's why I use the word sacrament to describe them. I yeah. really think of them as a sacrament rather than as a drug. So then um, the question, I, I wonder, I love that, and I wondered about if that's, if they're a sacrament, how do we develop a sacred culture around this? Yeah. Like, in, in other words, um, there's developing a medical culture. We already know we have a party culture, right. but how is how does a sacred culture develop? Yeah, well, that's that is happening. That's the thing I read about. Well, there, there, are, there are churches. There are ayahuasca churches, which are which can legally use ayahuasca in their right, ceremonies. Right. There's that, and there's just there's also the whole shamanic underground where there is a there. These are communities of people that get together occasionally to 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 do ayahuasca or peyote or whatever. Uh, and there are, so there are, gra- there's a grassroots sort of small group movement sort of bubbling up around this. And people are, are using this in a ritual, kind of a sacred way. I mean, treating it with the respect it deserves. So that's happening. Uh, it's happening, you know, above ground with say, the Native American church where they can legally use peyote or the ayahuasca churches where uh, they can legally use ayahuasca and this whole larger gray area where you know, people are acting like the the post-prohibition era has arrived. It hasn't. <laughs> I mean, this stuff is still illegal right. for mo- in most cases. But um, that's why it's such an interesting time right now. Uh, and then there's the whole, you know, there's, whole, there's the whole drug reform, cognitive liberty aspect of this, which we haven't talked about. You yes. know, I mean, why should the government tell me that I can't alter my own consciousness if I'm not hurting anyone? I mean, well, just, just the basic question. Why should that I, so, be illegal? So... <laughs> What, and, and where I get concerned about that is because you might hurt yourself, because you might not have the knowledge to know what dosage to take. You might not have the knowledge to know about set and setting. You might have yeah. no knowledge, and then it might really harm you. 
uh, you yeah, know, which is a reason to have education and a reason to have communities. That, right, but it's also a reason to have somebody regulating the dosage of what's available on the market. But I, you know, this is an area where I think you and yeah. I disagree because I. Yeah. But I, I am aware also that. Um, you know, if you have that, there's there could well be an underground market of higher dosage, um, you know, substances, higher dosage dosages. Yeah. Um, but I but I do worry about um, just given that in American culture we have such a um, re- we have such a uh, party relationship with drugs in general of all different types, and so unlike say in the Amazon where there is in a deeply embedded sacred culture, I think it will be work in America to create a deeply embedded sacred culture. Yeah, it, it would be. And, and you know, I can see as a, like, oh, sort of philosophically, politically, I, I don't think any drug should be illegal. I mean, I think, because it's not working, for one thing. It's Look not, at the opioid epidemic. Not Look at alcoholism. Yeah. I mean, tobacco. I mean, you, na- you name it. I mean, there's there, there are drugs that are causing so much more. I mean, so much more damage than mushrooms and MDMA. I mean, so just look at it realistically, that drug laws aren't working in any way, shape, or form. It's, it's totally insane. But I do think that it, that, I don't know, could you have like maybe some kind of a system where if you're an adult, you have to get a license to take. Like to, a license to like drive, a, like a, a yeah, license if, if to you use. Wanna, if you wanna fly an airplane, you have to get a pilot's license, mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So maybe you know if you can go go to a, go to some workshops, go to a, you know get get certified so you know it to, to to be screened because there are people with certain pre-existing psychological conditions that shouldn't take some of these drugs. Like paranoid schizophrenia is not often a good mix with psychedelics. Mm-hmm. It's not good for all should, mental should illness. A, should there be a license to drink as well? Do you think? Well, that's. I don't think there should be either. But there, there's a license to drink and drive. I mean, there's a there's a there's a, there's well, there, there's a license there, to there, drink there, and there not ram, drive. The ramifications <laughs> when you drink and drive is what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't. I'm not sure how that would play out. I mean, the the medicalization. I think a lot of people see it as a step towards decriminalization, kind of like what happened with marijuana. First, we had medical marijuana. And of course, we all know that 90% of the people that went to the medical marijuana clinic <laughs> were just like to get high, right? There are some that right, was helping them with certain conditions. But it sort of the society sh- showed this, okay, this is not going to be the end of the world if people can go buy some marijuana. And now we have now we have recreational marijuana. Now, you can agree with that or disagree with that, but the world didn't end. And didn't, you know, so... So some people see the, the medicalization of psychedelics as a step towards legalization. Uh, I mean, there's a quote from, uh, from Rick Doblin. Is Rick here? He was thinking about it. Rick Doblin is the head of MAPS. He thought he might be here tonight because he was in town. Um, you know, he said, the last gasp of the baby boomers will be the legalization of marijuana and psychedelics. That was uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> the last gasp of the baby boomers. And that's, that could very well, very well happen. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. But no, I, I, you're right. There, there, I think people need to be encouraged to educate themselves, to be careful. But, you know, the problem is if you're buying, people are not going to stop buying drugs if they're legal. They're, they're going to buy drugs on the street. They're not going to know what they're getting. That's right, that's the right. problem. Yeah. So, you know, the so just knowing, ha- having the knowledge about how to take these substances and then being able to get what you think you're getting. And you can only do that by decriminalizing and some having some kind of legal access. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. yeah. You know, maybe we can, I think we're getting close to the end of our time. Maybe we can close with, you have a really lovely um, reading from from the Following Our Bliss book where you're describing, uh, you know, sort of a, you're sort of in some coded ways describing a beginning of your own journey 
um, oh, with yeah. psychedelics. Yeah. And, and I think it's a really beautiful description of what it is to be on this cusp and falling into it. You know, it, um, it, okay, it yeah, might, yeah. I, need, I think I need to set it up a little, but... Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I actually, I you know, getting ready for this event, I mean, I've actually been kind of moving on to some other areas in my reporting and life, and I haven't thought too much about this. And I was looking back over the four books that I've done on this subject, starting with Following Our Bliss, which was in 2002. And in, at that time, I was not coming out of the closet as a, you know, psychedelic enthusiast. <laughs> like I was still, the, I was employed as the religion writer at the Chronicle, you know, so I thought I had to be a little careful. But <laughs> but uh, eventually I tell the story in Harvard Psychedelic Club, but when I was, with, I think it's a story that's important because it shows the, the potential and the peril of psychedelic exploration. Because So when I, was, when I was 19, a freshman at UC Berkeley, I had a new girlfriend, we were sort of madly in love, you know, and we decided to go down to Big Sur one weekend and drop some, you know, massive <laughs> dose of LSD. I think it was probably 250, 300 micrograms, you know, I think it was windowpane acid and on the cliff at Big Sur. And it was the first, I'd done a little bit of LSD in, in high school, but it was the first full-blown psychedelic experience that I ever had. And it was with this girl that I just met and we just had the most incredible experience melting together, melting with oneness with everything. You know, and I was I was reading her mind. I was telling her things about her family. I had no way of knowing she was returning the favor. We had this incredible, on, literally on a cliff at Big Sur. You know, you're kind of cl classic good trip, right? Where I and I would became convinced that I was going to be with this woman the rest of my life. That's what true love was. We were really becoming one. Uh, I just totally blew me away, right? And then for weeks after that, we'd touch and we'd melt together with no drugs. We, this magical thing was happening, and I was just so you know ecstatic. And and then a couple weeks later, we had another trip with another couple in the woods up in Northern California. And the opposite happened. It was like the bad trip from Central Casting. We didn't realize we were at a hunting lodge for one thing, so people were firing guns all around us. They talk about set, they talk about set and setting being important. <laughs> so, and we were like, you know, these hippie kids, and there were all these hunters there, rednecks, and it was. And then I had an argument with my girlfriend, and we split up. And I had a paranoid, horrible, paranoid, scary, just, just, just hellish trip. Which was okay. That's a bad trip. It was a bad trip from Central Casting, but I it, it didn't stop. So for several weeks after that, oh maybe a month or two, I was having flashbacks. I was having hallucinations with no drugs. I thought I'd permanently destroyed my mind. You you, you weren't even able to really to read. I, I couldn't. I was a freshman study. at Cal, and I read one sentence. One word would take me off on a tangent. I couldn't focus. I was having hallucinations. I stopped driving because I couldn't believe if her light was red or green. I mean, I was, I should have been locked, I would have been locked up. And I didn't have, the thing is, I didn't have anybody to turn to. I didn't have a community. I didn't have a therapist. If I would have had a, 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 a supportive community to talk about that or a therapist to work that through, I mean, you know, I was lucky. I managed to get through it pretty much on my own. But um, so anyway, the, so what, what you wanted me to read. I didn't say any of that. You had to know that when you listened to it. So big, that's why Big Sur always is, has a special place in my heart. But so, uh, all right, so let's see, where is it? So this is, the, this is actually a chapter about the Esalen Institute. This book is not just about psychedelics. It's, it's the title is How the Spiritual Legacy of the 60s Shape Our Lives Today. And, but there's a chapter about psychedelics in here. But the, this is a chapter actually about Esalen. But it starts out like this. Every story needs a beginning and every religion its Garden of Eden. 
Ours begins on a green shelf perched above the rugged splendor of the central California coast. Blue and orange wildflowers dazzle in the noonday sun. Streaming hot springs bubble up from the ground, forming pools with a pungent smell but a sensuous silky feel. Sixty feet below, the cold Pacific crashes ashore. This is a place of pilgrimage, but not just for humans. Monarch butterflies rest here during their annual migration. They make the round trip only once, but somehow their progeny find their way back. In coastal canyons cool with morning fog, these noble insects annually blanket the landscape with wings of orange and black. I just actually saw that when I was there. Uh, uh, Big Sur is wild and full of wonder, its danger and delight. You feel the seasons, rain and wind lash the coast in winter, sending mud and rocks sliding down the hillside. But those same, same storms nourish this dry landscape, inspiring green grasses, poppies, lupin to shoot, to shoot up in the spring. Summers are cold and foggy, but the salt air warms in early fall, drying the spring grass and fueling wildfires that blacken the land. And this is the kind of the coded part. Big Sur opens you up, but it can tear at your soul, leaving emptiness inside. It's the end of the line for those of us who wandered across the continent, which I did as a kid, uh, running from the past or towards an uncertain future. There's nowhere to go but off the cliff or into yourself. At the edge lies the serpent. That's LSD. At the edge lies the serpent, coiled and ready to help you find the truth. Take this knowledge, drink this potion, shed your skin, find yourself, find God, find something. But be careful not to lose it because you can't go back. Don Latin, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DeMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. <laughs>